First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, and to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We began our journey through the book of 1 Peter really four weeks ago, but we have only gotten to the second verse. I felt like that it would be needful and beneficial to stop before we even got started to explain the doctrines that make up the system of Calvinism. That phrase in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's one of the proof texts that Calvinists go to often. And so I took the opportunity of coming to that phrase to expound or expose what I think is one of the more dangerous doctrines or systems or teachings that is sweeping across many churches. Calvinism is not a new thing, but it is seeing a revival or a resurgence of sort, even in Baptist churches that at one time would have never subscribed to it. And so we stopped for a couple of weeks and we dealt with that. So we come this morning to verse number two. And I want to remind you that Peter is writing this letter to suffering saints. That is hinted at in the phrase in verse number one, to the stranger's Scattered. They are scattered because of persecution. They lived in a world that was increasingly hostile to Christianity under a government that, that encouraged, even sponsored their persecution. Many of these people have been displaced from their homes and disowned by their families. And so it's no wonder that Peter mentions suffering 16 times in this little epistle of five chapters and 105 verses. But their suffering is not just bad fortune. It's important to remember that they are suffering for the cause of Christ. All of the injustices that are rained down upon them is brought upon them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Had they not decided to follow Jesus, they would have been able to live their lives in relative peace and security. But when they... When they invited Christ into their life, they brought upon them crosses and losses that they would not have known before. And so the sufferings are not just the general pains of life. It is the particular persecution of believers. As I looked at this passage and the context of suffering, the thought came to me is, what do you say to hurting people? We've all had the occasion to try to offer solace to somebody who has maybe received a bad report from the doctor or just lost a loved one. And our heart goes out to them in pity and words fail us, but we want to offer some kind of comfort, some kind of hope. And, and all of us have, you know, you know, Psalm 23 and Romans 8, 28. I, I will confess to you that that's not always the comfort that somebody needs to hear. So what do you say? If you want to give comfort, if you want to give hope to somebody that is, that is really suffering, then, then, then what do you say to them? 
But to Peter, it was to remind them of their salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he talks about in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5. He's talking about being saved. The thing that will help you most in this present world of hope is to remind you that you are a citizen of another world. The comfort of present sufferings is to remind you of the glory that is to come. When you have been rejected by this world, it will help you to know that you have been chosen by God. Peter does not give them empty platitudes. He does not tell them something good is about to happen. I, I think that tomorrow is going to be better. He, he doesn't do any of that. He does tell them that their sufferings are for a present season and, 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 and maybe their misfortunes change. Maybe it does not. He doesn't tell them how to escape the sufferings. But here's what he does. He gives them perspective. Because perspective is, is, is it, it tells you how to respond to, to the world that you're living in. And as great as their suffering is, he doesn't mention it first. He mentions their salvation first. Because suffering has to be seen in the right perspective. And by reminding them of their salvation first, he fixes their mind first on that which will help them endure their suffering. Salvation is, if I could say it like this, salvation is the vantage point from which we view suffering. So many Christians look at their salvation through their circumstances. But in reality, we ought to look at our circumstances through our salvation. So when you begin to read 1 Peter chapter 1, the first thing that we read in these verses is a very rich description of the grandeur of salvation. In verse number 1, he describes their condition on earth. In verse number 2, it is their position in heaven. As far as earth goes, they're scattered, they're persecuted. But as far as heaven goes, they are chosen by the Father. Now, I've been studying this passage for several weeks, waiting to get to it. And I would tell you that every phrase in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5 is full of truth. That every word, there is a wealth of doctrine in it. Notice, if you would, in verse number 2, that he describes the source of our salvation. I love this. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the first thing I want you to notice about verse 2 is that there is the Trinity at work in our salvation. The doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine of the Holy God, one Holy God, that exists in three persons. The three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in three, three in one, equal in existence and essence. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And though they are distinct in person, they are one in essence. In other words, the Father is 100% God. And the Son is 100% God. And the Spirit is 100% God. Now, if you didn't say amen right there, you missed an opportunity. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, when all three persons of the Godhead work in concert, Theologians have a word for that. They call it the economy of the Godhead. It simply means that in whatever work the three persons of the Godhead are in view, they always work in unity and one in purpose. Each one takes on a different role, but the work is one. 
It's an exciting study to look at all of the things in the Bible where all three persons of the Godhead are involved. For example, creation. Genesis 1 and verse 1 tells you that God, the Father, was involved in creation. Verse number 2 tells you that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Colossians 1 and verse 16, Hebrews 1 and verse 2 tells you that the Son was involved in creation. All three of them involved. Another work that all three of them were involved in was the resurrection of Christ from the dead. There are several works there. But the Bible is most explicit in attributing salvation to the work of the Trinity more than any other work. Salvation is the work of all three persons of the Godhead. Everything that God does for us in salvation, He does through the Spirit and by the Son. Give you a couple of verses just to demonstrate it for you. Isaiah 48 and verse number 16. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken it in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I, that's Jesus, and now the Lord God, that's the Father, and His Spirit has sent me. That's all three. Galatians 4 and verse number 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God, that's the Father, sent forth His Son, that's Jesus, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, you see that? There's all three of them. Titus 4 and verse number 4, but after the kindness and love of God our Savior, toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which is shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Trinity is involved in our salvation. That's what you find in verse number 2. Notice, if you would, that our salvation is by the sovereign's choice. Look at verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Father is the author of our salvation. He is the one who planned it. He is the one who orchestrated it. He is the one who accomplishes it. Now you know that there's already, we've, we've discussed this, that there's a great controversy over the word elect, elect. And I've dealt with it at length, probably more so than you wanted me to, on the doctrines of Calvinism and, 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 and their view of, of, of election. Can I say that because someone abuses the Bible doctrine does not mean that you and I should shy away from it? Because the Calvinist misinterprets election doesn't mean that we should run away and get in the other ditch and deny the doctrine of election. It is a Bible doctrine. Now, I've spent some time about what, 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 what election is not. It is not God arbitrarily choosing some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. The Calvinist idea is that if you are God's elect, that God looked down through time and he chose you to be elected and other people will just have to go to hell because God hath not chosen them. There's nothing that you can do to get elected. There's nothing you can do if you're not elected. And in that doctrine, you must conclude that there are some people that God made no effort to save. And you would have to include in that even infants and children. God not only made no effort to save some, God didn't want them 
to be saved. In fact, you'd have to conclude that God wanted most men to go to hell because most men are going to hell. And everybody that goes to hell goes to hell because God didn't want to save them and God didn't choose them. God chose to only save a few. Christ died only for those elect. Those elect and only those elect are guaranteed to be saved and all the rest will die and go to hell. Now the Calvinist tries to get out of the theological principle saying that they die because of unbelief. But the problem is they can't believe because God doesn't grant them to believe. He doesn't allow them to. I want to tell you that that is not the Bible doctrine of election. But it is a Bible doctrine. You can't say, I, I don't believe in election. You can say, I don't believe in the Calvinist view of election. But the word elect, the word elected, election, is found 27 times in your Bible, from Old Testament and New Testament. And most times it has nothing to do with salvation. Take your Bible. Can we look at a couple of verses this morning? Take your Bible all the way to Isaiah chapter 45. Don't lose 1 Peter. Go all the way, all the way to Isaiah chapter 45. Let me show you some of the things that God has elected. Isaiah 45 and verse number 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by my name. Did you know that Israel is the elect of God? Come all the way back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, all the way back now. And 1 Timothy chapter 5, and look at verse number 21. 1 Timothy 5 and verse number 21. I charge thee before God. And the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. There are some angels that are elect. Come back to 1 Peter. We've already read chapter 1 and verse 2. So go to chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verse number 13. 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. The church that is at Babylon elected together with you. Believers, saved people, the church. That's elect. Look at 2 Peter, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter, chapter 2, just back a page. Chapter 2, look at verse number 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect. That's talking about Jesus Christ. Israel is God's elect or chosen nation. The church is God's elect people. Uh, Christ is God's elect Savior. Angels are God's chosen ministers. Now the word elect, it simply means a choice. God made a choice. But don't force upon him a choice that is not in the scripture. You see, election only gets complicated when you approach it with your preconceived idea of what it must mean. Most of the references to election in the Bible has nothing to do with salvation. Israel is God's elect. But not everybody in Israel is saved. Most of them were lost and went to hell. Angels are God's elect, but they're not saved. There's no redemption for the angels that fail. So election is not just about salvation. Election has to do with choices that God made. Come to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. We'll just look at a couple of verses. And I, I know that I, I, I'm not going to belabor the point. But, but come to Ephesians chapter 1. And boy, here's a verse that... That, that people get twisted up in. 
Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now you ought to take a pencil. And you ought to underline the words in Christ. That's going to come up several times in this passage. In Christ, in Him. Everything that you're going to read is because you are in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Would you just cast your eyes upon verse number 4? And would you just recognize that it does not say that we have been chosen to be in Him before the foundation of the world? It says that we have been chosen in Him. If you are in Him, then you are one of the chosen ones to receive all the spiritual blessings in this passage. When you got saved, you were placed in Christ. And in Christ, God chose, God determined that we would be holy and blameless before Him. If you are in Him, you have been chosen to have these spiritual blessings. And He determined that before the foundation of the world. But His choice doesn't cancel out your choice. He made a choice, but He also gave you a choice. You don't get saved outside of your will. You have to choose Him if He's going to choose you. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, but we're bound to give thanks always to God for you. Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, catch this, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. If you don't believe the truth, you're not going to be chosen to salvation. You have a choice and God is not going to save you against your choice. Elect. Come back, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1 again. 1 Peter chapter 1 again. Notice this phrase, very important. Elect, catch this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This choosing of us in Christ is based on God's foreknowledge. And can I tell you that that's where the Calvinist system really goes off the rail. Now, take the word foreknowledge. That's a simple word. Probably everybody here could put four and knowledge together and figure out what it means. If you were to go to the man on the street and ask him on the street, just, just any random man, and ask him, what does foreknowledge mean? If he has just a great, a great school education, he's going to say something along the lines it means to know beforehand. That's probably what you're guessing it means. Foreknowledge, to know beforehand. For example, I have foreknowledge. I know, I know, I know that before I finish this sermon, that some of you will be sleeping. That's called foreknowledge is what that is, right? In fact, before I even started, I knew who would be sleeping. I, 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 I know that, okay? I, that, I, I know that. Now, I don't force you to sleep. I'm not making you go to sleep. It's just in my foreknowledge. I know. We have people that's been in our church for 15 years, and they've never heard me preach a complete sermon. Never, in, never have. So that's foreknowledge. You, you understand that? I, don't, I, I know something. I, I don't make you do that. 
I'm not telling you to do that, but, but that is going to happen. Now, so, so here's the thing. You can know that something is going to happen without forcing it to happen, especially if you're God. But that messes up Calvinism. You see, for Calvinism, foreknowledge is not just to know something beforehand and base actions upon that. No, that takes away from the glory of God. So they have to redefine it. You're in 1 Peter 1, right? Are you there? Go all the way down to verse number 20. Verse number 20. In verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now, we'll get to that verse in a couple of months when we get to verse 20. Ten out of ten Reformed theologians will tell you that foreordained in verse 20 comes from the same Greek word as foreknowledge in verse number two. That it is the same word. Therefore, foreknowledge is not just God knowing what's going to happen. It is God foreordaining. The logic is that God foreordained for Christ to die for the sins of the world before the foundation of the world, then you and I have been foreordained to be elected to salvation from the, from the foundation of the world. Elect according to the foreknowledge, verily was foreordained to die, same word, same word, and so when they get to foreknowledge in verse number two, they read it as foreordained. Now I'm going to help you with something right now. All right? You're going to be glad that you came to church this morning. I'm going to teach you something right now. Are you ready for this? Get your pencils out. I'm going to help you right now. There is a problem with that. And here is the problem. It's not the same word in English. It's not. It's, too different. it's spelled different. It's said different. And if you look it up in a dictionary, it had two different meanings. Now, if you want to always have to run to the Greek to find out what the Bible says, to help yourself. But I'm reading English. I can read it. It is two different words. I can pull up a dictionary. I can find definitions of two different words. God, God foreknows all things, but it does not say that God foreordained all things. So what is God foreordained? Come, come to Acts chapter 2. I, I, I know i got I got to move. i got to move. I, I know that. Acts chapter 2. And, and look what God foreknows and foreordains. Acts chapter 2, and, and look if you would in verse number 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Watch this. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God not only knew about the crucifixion of Christ, He determined it. Now there you have foreknowledge and you have foreordained together, but they are not always together. Luke 22 and verse 22, Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. 
to determine something beforehand is to predestinate. It is to foreordain it. And one thing that God foreordained before the foundation of the world was that His Son, Jesus Christ, would come to the cross of Calvary and would die for our sin. God foreknew that because He foreordained it. But for the Calvinist system to work, they have to impose that upon everything that ever happens. The Bible doesn't say God foreordained your salvation, but He did foreknow it. Come, come back to Ephesians chapter 5. Come, come back to it. Ephesians chapter 5. See with me? I hope so. Ephesians 5, look at verse number 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Look at verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We are chosen in Christ. And when you're chosen in Christ, God predetermined it. He'd do some things for you. It doesn't say that he predestined to put you in Christ arbitrarily with no choice of your own. It is saying that all of those who are in Christ have been chosen and predestined to something. It, the, the emphasis is not, it's not he's determining who will be saved. It's what salvation will involve. To determine beforehand that those who believe will have all of these blessings of salvation. Now, I, I know I've got to move on. I, I've said enough about Calvinism and maybe I'll never say anything else about it again. It is a belief system. It is a belief system that, that is sweeping through churches. It's destroyed so many churches, so many churches. There's many articulate and educated men in high positions of church life. And young preachers are reading them and following them. And I, I say to young men, be careful, be careful what you read. And you read the other side so you know what they believe. And, 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 and you must have discernment. To know that when you hear something, when you read something, it gives an uncertain sound. But always, 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 always go back to Scripture. There's a lot of philosophy. There's a lot of logic in Calvinism. But what does the Bible say? And you know, back in 1 Peter, when, when Peter brings up elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he's not giving a theological essay on the subject. Because I want you to remember, he's writing to comfort the suffering. There's nothing comforting about debating free will and predestination. It's more vexing than it is comforting. So Peter's not laying out the depth of the doctrine, but he is reminding these saints that though you may not be the choice of the world, you are the choice of God. We can't, we can't enjoy the truth that God has chosen us in Christ because we're afraid that that makes us a coward. Don't let anybody steal that precious truth from you. You are chosen by God. Our salvation, it is, it is the sovereign's choice. Notice secondly, notice secondly, it is by the Spirit's call. Verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. So the Father has a part, and now the Holy Spirit has a part. Now the word sanctified, it means to be set apart. We've been separated, set apart, sanctified unto Jesus Christ. And Peter, Peter uses that word to speak of the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And it's probably meant to be comprehensive. It is a word that encompasses everything that the Holy Spirit does in, in saving a man. 
The Holy Spirit is there at the beginning convicting a man of his sin, convincing us of Christ. When you trust Christ, he, He's there as the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's there in the progressive view of conforming us to the image of Christ, practical sanctification. So the Holy Spirit is there. He's at the beginning. He's in the middle. He'll be there at the end. And the word, the word sanctification, it can be confusing because, because it doesn't, it's not just a single narrow definition. Sometimes the Bible uses that word in our initial sanctification. It is, it is a positional truth. But sometimes that word is used in, in that ongoing process of progressive sanctification. It's the same word. He, he has sanctified us in calling us to Christ and setting us apart from death to light, from, from, from darkness to life. But, but He is sanctifying us, working in us and perfecting the image of Christ in us. Positional. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. Such were some of you, but you are washed, but ye are sanctified. Catch that. Uh, Acts 20 and verse 32. Now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you an inheritance among all of them which are sanctified. Hebrews 10, 10. By the which will we are sanctified. We have been set apart to Christ. We do belong to him. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. But now the Holy Spirit begins to work in us practically what he has declared us to be positionally. That first time, it is a one-time act of, of setting us apart, but, but now there's an ongoing process. John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And for those sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. 2 Timothy 2.12, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel of honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. So that's the Holy Spirit's work in our salvation. It, it is the Holy Spirit who awakens in you those first longings for God and to know Him. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts you of your sin and leads you to the cross where that sin can be forgiven. It is the Holy Spirit who enables you to be freed from that sin and be conformed to the image of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who gives you the assurance that you belong to Him by that Spirit within you. Oh, thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation, it is by sovereign choice. It is through the Spirit's call. But then notice thirdly, the Son's cleansing. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. How many of you remember when you were in grade school, maybe high school, that you had to diagram sentences? Do you remember that? Draw a line, subject, straight line, verb, slant a line, direct object. Do you remember that? I want to tell you, when I was in school, that was one of my favorite things to do. I loved diagramming. It, it was just a blast. Just, you just do that. Just, 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 it was great. If you'll diagram the sentence, it, it'll come alive to you. If you will notice, if you'll notice that there is one subject and there are three prepositional phrases. Elect. Elect. There it is. Watch this. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect through sanctification of the Spirit. Elect unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Every phrase goes back to elect. 
we were, we were chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. Now, again, you can make foreknowledge and be foreordained, or you can believe that foreknowledge means foreknowledge. He gave me a choice. And based on his knowledge of the choice that I would make in my response to the gospel, he chose me. But then we were chosen through sanctification of the Spirit. When I placed my trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit set me apart. He did that initially. Initially, He does that progressively. He's the one that accomplished my salvation. He's the one that's going to perfect it. But, but then we were chosen, we were elect unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Salvation results in a life of obedience. We are set apart not to the old life, but to a new life of being, of being of, of obedience. You won't live in perfect obedience, but obedience, but obedience will be the general direction of your life. Yeah. For, for the longest time, I, I read obedience. I, I read obedience as, as the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of the Father. But that's not the flow of the sentence. It is true that we are saved by His obedience. We are saved by obeying the gospel. But I believe the obedience here is our obedience to His will. We are not saved by obedience. We are saved unto obedience. Unto obedience. Now let me show you something. Let me show you something exciting. Okay? Now we've been memorizing 1 Peter. Memorize chapter 1. I'm going to quote it today. I'm going to quote it today. So for a month, I've been, I've, been, I've been quoting this verse to myself. And for the longest time, Brother Nathan, I read this thing, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I had no idea what it meant. But you know, after you quote something a thousand times to yourself, it kind of gets inside of you. And this week, this week, I saw something about this. I got excited. I mean, I just got giddy. I just, I just, it just almost came out of my skin. Unto obedience and sprinkling. Sprinkling. How are we sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? We know that we're washed in the blood, right? Walk and wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 5 talks about how that we are washed from the sins, how he washed us from the sins in his own blood. So we understand what, but have I been sprinkled in the blood too? Maybe it helps to keep the progression straight because there are three actions that take place. But think about this. At what point in verse number 3 did you actually get saved? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father took place in eternity past. Sanctification of the Spirit. That's when I called upon Him. That's when I got saved. And after that, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Salvation took place in the setting apart of the Holy Spirit. So something took place in eternity past. Something happened when you trusted Jesus. And something happens after you get saved. The sanctification of the Spirit leads to your obedience and sprinkling of the blood. So I don't believe that the sprinkling of the blood is the same as being washed in the blood. I don't think that's when you got saved. I think it takes place after you got saved. Now, whenever you come to something in the Bible and you don't understand, you always run to commentaries. I'm going to tell you the best commentary in the Bible. Are you ready? It's the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And sometimes the Bible will just interpret itself. Now, there's a lot of references in the Old Testament to the mercy seat, the altar being sprinkled with the blood. 
but there are only two times in the Bible where an individual is sprinkled with blood. Look at Leviticus chapter 4. I'm watching it. I'm watching it. Look at Leviticus chapter 4. I got three verses to go. Look at Leviticus chapter 14. Leviticus 14, and look at verse number 6. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and shall dip them, and the living bird and the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water, and he shall sprinkle upon him, that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. Do not say amen. Don't let it say amen. When the leper was cleansed, two, blood, two birds, kill one bird, take the blood of the other bird, sprinkle it on the other bird, let him go, and sprinkle the blood upon the leper that is symbolic of his cleansing. That's one time. Come back to Leviticus chapter 8. Here's the only other time where they sprinkled somebody with blood. Leviticus chapter 8, look if you would, in verse number 30. Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which is upon the altar and sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him and sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. The leper is sprinkled with the blood of a bird, but Aaron and his sons are sprinkled with the blood of a ram in consecration. And that is the only two times in your Bible when an individual is sprinkled with blood and neither one of them fits 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. Because Peter's not talking about a leper getting cleansed. He's not talking about the consecration of a priest. Neither one of them helps me. But this week, Brother Joe, I found that there's one other time where not an individual, but a group of people are sprinkled by blood. Only happened one time. Look at Exodus chapter 24 with me. Exodus chapter 24. Some people get excited about ball games. Some people get excited about ice cream. I got excited about this right here. Look at Exodus 24. Look at verse number 3. Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the word and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said will we do. Kind of sounds like obedience right there. Verse 4. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, rose up early in the morning, built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people and they said, all that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. But Moses comes with, with the law of God. and These laws are called the book of the covenant. You find that phrase in verse 7. They're an expansion. They're an application of, of the Ten Commandments. He proclaims these words to all of the people. And they say in verse number 3 that all the words which the Lord has said will we do. And then he writes it down. Builds a special altar. Young men come and they offer sacrifices. He collects the blood from those sacrifices. And then Moses takes the blood. He catches them basins. And half of the blood, he sprinkles it on the altar. And half of the blood, he sprinkles it on the people. The people are making a covenant with God. That They're making a covenant of obedience. And God's making a covenant with them. If you verse number 8. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. 
and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. We don't speak much of covenants now, but in ancient times, covenants were often written in blood. Both parties would somehow have blood on them, so it was a covenant sealed in blood. The sprinkling of the blood was to consecrate both parties. And the blood on the altar indicated God's part, the blood on the people indicated their part. And the people being sprinkled consecrated their promise of obedience. The sprinkling on the altar consecrated God's promise of faithfulness. So there's a very distinct connection in this, in this passage between sprinkling and obedience. And it's the only time in the Bible where a group of people are sprinkled with blood. And in 1 Peter 1, when Peter speaks of sprinkling and obedience, there's only one other place in the Bible where that connection is made. This is the only cross-reference you can find to 1 Peter 1 and verse number 2. Now, believe what Peter is doing is drawing from that Old Testament picture and he's bringing it over into New Testament Christianity. And here's what he's saying. He said, when you were saved and when you were sanctified by the Holy Spirit, there is a covenant, there is a commitment of obedience. When you get saved, you're not just accepting His death on your behalf, but you're covenanting thing. You are committing to Him in obedience. You set apart to God. Set apart to God unto a life of obedience. We are sprinkled with His blood symbolically to make the point that we are called to a life of obedience. That passage is so important that Paul speaks of it two times in the book of Hebrews. Quickly, quickly. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me just show you the verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. That speaketh better things than that of Abel. Back to chapter 9, Hebrews 9 and verse number 19. For where a testament is, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. I'm sorry, verse number 19. For, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wood, and Hesabeth sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. There's two sides to the covenant. The blood sprinkled on the altar is God's promise of forgiveness. The blood sprinkled on the people is their promise of obedience. So here's what 1 Peter 1 and verse number 2 is saying. I'm out of time. The Father chose me in Christ. The Spirit sanctified and set me apart. Sprinkle with the blood of Jesus unto obedience. I, 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 that just thrills me. I, I, I just got excited about it. I love when Scripture fits and when it ties together. And I've, I've probably spent too much time on this, I, I, but it's hard to just pass over what you see and study. And, and I've got two more points, and that Jacob Parker, don't even put them up. I, I, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. The source of our salvation, it is a Trinitarian salvation. All three persons of the Godhead are involved. In verse number three, we'll get to the specifics in verse four and five. Oh, the security of our salvation, that inheritance incorruptible. Like, I guess, uh, just come back real quick, real quick. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I, just look at verse three, and, and I'm, I'm not going to preach verse three. I'm not, I'm not going to preach it. But look at verse three. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, here's what I would just say to you. Theology always leads to doxology. Always. You, you can't help it. 
Theology always leads to doxology. Peter starts out in verse 2 describing this great salvation. Heavy, heavy themes. He's not done, but he has to just pause before he goes on. And he has to say, Hallelujah. I got more to say, but just pause and just say, Bless God. But here's the thing about it He's not saying what a blessing salvation is to us, it's not blessing to us. It is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You ever had somebody be such a big blessing to you, you want to be a blessing to them? They, they, just, they just went over and aboard, above, and you just somehow want to be a blessing to them. And when you think about what a blessing God has been to us, it'll make you want to be a blessing to God. If there were no other blessings except this, that's enough. If all you have is salvation, that's enough. It'll make you want to bless Him. He's blessed me, so blessed be Him. I want the theme of my life to be a blessing to God. He has blessed me, so may I be a blessing to Him. Is your life, is your life a blessing to God? I wonder if all of this talk about salvation, I wonder if it does anything for Adam. Does it give you any hope? Any comfort? What does it do for you? Well, this is what Peter thought that these people needed. You got a lot of suffering and a lot of hurt in your world. But before we talk about that, let me just remind you that you're saved. We'll talk about suffering. We'll talk about what to do. But first of all, let me just remind you what God has done for you. And the Father has been such a blessing that may our lives be lived in obedience and a blessing to Him. What would please God in your life? What in your life would bless Him? We come to church. We come to church and here's what we say. I hope the blessings service is a blessing to you. And I do. I, I hope that you're not bored. I, I hope that you've enjoyed the singing. You get something out of the preaching. But we didn't come this morning to get a blessing. We ought to come every Sunday and say, Lord, we want you to be blessed. If the visitor doesn't like the singing, I'm sorry. But I sure want him to like it. If the Spirit is not pleasing to you, I'm sorry. But I sure want it to be pleasing to him. He... He has blessed me, so blessed 